This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of February 27, 2023, here are some top stories. A group of Navajo residents living near what's become a landmark waterfall in northern Arizona want to close it off to tourists and visitors, saying the increasingly popular area is being loved to death. In Flagstaff, Michelle Morisco reports. Grand Falls is a haunting spot on the Little Colorado River, just a few miles inside the Navajo Nation. The falls are nearly 200 feet high and leave a sensor watching some ephemeral movement of the land as the roiling waters melt the landscape. The Navajo Nation's tourism department touts Grand Falls as a place to visit, including this video of the falls roaring down at their fullest. It suggests seasons to visit, like now when snows melt off the falls and during monsoon storms when the agency claims the so-called chocolate falls reach heights bigger than those of Niagara. But the tourism department also warns folks not to camp out overnight and to respect locals and their livestock. Herman Cody says that's where the trouble starts. Well, uh, the thing is, uh, when, when they come... Some of them, not everyone, of course, uh, they think it's a free-for-all. You know, go, go, go where you want to go, do what you want to do. He pointed to a pair of jeeps that traversed the waters below as we spoke in the cab of a pickup truck to shelter from blustery winds on top of the plateau. They room, room all the motorcycles that way and then ATVs. And if they have uh, uh, four-wheel pickup trucks, they go where there are no roads. Some of the tourism feels more invasive than that. Uh, the latest thing I understand now are the, what do they call those things that, are, that hover in the air? The drones? Yeah, the drones. They fly them on top of people's homes. And they go that way and they find maybe like ancient ruins over there. And then they put they post them. And so people come and they come over here um, have to see that and then they go over there and start searching for it down there. On a recent Saturday, Cody and a group of other residents gathered to plan out how to close Grand Falls to the public. But in the meantime, temporarily, uh, we plan on asking that they don't congregate in this area because that's, that's exactly what happens here. And and uh, let us let us figure things out. Cody said the group does not want to close Grand Falls to Native American tribe members who may use the site for their own sacred rites. But the authority to close Grand Falls to non-Native visitors is murky. The Navajo Nation's own tourism department continues to promote the falls and acquiesces authority to the local Navajo government, the Loop Chapter House. But the president of the chapter house declined to be interviewed. But on February 8th, the chapter house asked the Museum of Northern Arizona to suspend an upcoming field trip the museum conducts at the falls because it didn't have a permit to do so. Up until that request, no permit was required, said Kristen Hutchison, director of public engagement at the Flagstaff Area Museum. We were definitely surprised. You know, I actually think that it's a good thing that they are taking measures. Um, Grand Falls is a very special place, and I know that the amount of visitation there has increased over the years. And so 
putting in place some kind of structure and, and procedures to protect it and maybe limit visitation makes sense. Violet White is writing up a resolution for residents from the Loop chapter to vote on that would temporarily close the area to non-Native visitors. Others are writing up a petition that so far has just a few signatures. A planning meeting will come up at the end of the month. This is barely the beginning um, of the process, so we want to hear other ideas, you know, like maybe another residents want to limit, you know, the visitors. So we're trying to still gather, you know, people's idea. What do you really want to do? Um, but for now, we're just temporarily shutting it down. Right now, that closure has come in the form of a pair of private property no trespassing signs mounted on the roads leading to the Majestic Falls. Reporting from Grand Falls, I'm Ichen Marisco, KJZZ News. In education news. It's been a little over a month since the African-American Museum of Southern Arizona started welcoming visitors at the University of Arizona campus. Elisa Resnick reports it's the first and only African-American museum in the state. Two years ago, Bob Elliott's seven-year-old grandson, Jody, had an assignment for Black History Month. Do a report on a hero or shero of your choice. So he goes online and he's looking up the regular cast of characters, Martin Luther King, uh, Sojourner Truth. Elliot is in his 60s with salt and pepper hair and a six foot nine frame. He's the museum's co-founder, along with his wife Beverly. They came to Tucson from Michigan in the 70s when Bob was recruited to play basketball for the University of Arizona. That day, in February of 2021, Jody had a question for Beverly. He said, so where do I go here to find a museum that's going to talk about people who look like me? You won't hear from Jody today. But his question is really what started it all. The Elliots aren't strangers to African-American history in Arizona. In fact, an important piece of it is what brought them here 50 years ago. Weighing different schools back then, Bob says he chose the University of Arizona partly because head basketball coach Fred Snowden had just been hired and made history. Coach Snowden was the first black coach, basketball coach, Division I in the United States at a major college. And it happened here at the University of Arizona 50 years ago. Snowden is, of course, just one of Arizona's African-American trailblazers. But Bob and Beverly soon realized the place Jody was asking about, where all those stories were held, didn't really exist yet. When they broke the news to their grandson... He says, you mean there's nobody black around here that did anything? And and my wife said, no, honey, it's just that there's not like a museum. So he looks her dead in the face and says, then you need to start one. And I'll help. Two years later, almost down to the month, Jody's request became a reality. Hi, Sean. Nice to meet you. Beverly. On a recent afternoon at the University of Arizona's campus, Beverly Elliott greeted a small group of students and university staff outside the museum. Uh, I'm Beverly Elliott. I'm the executive director for the museum. It's a simple, single-room space at the Student Union. Glass showcases display small exhibits, and TV screens mounted on the walls play oral history interviews some in person and some in classic pandemic style on Zoom. Beverly's first stop is a collection of prints depicting African-American infantrymen known as Buffalo Soldiers, who joined the military when it became legal for them to do so after the Civil War. They served in Southern Arizona. But one of the things that most people don't know is in 1866 was right at the end of the war, most of these were, had been enslaved men and they didn't know where their place were. They were separated. This uh, provided them with, guess what? 
clothes, shoes. Most of them had never had shoes before. Like a lot of the collections on display now, these prints came to the Elliots because people in Arizona heard about the museum and wanted to take part. And like Bob, Beverly knows a lot of this history personally. Another display shows footage of a group of African-American students, teachers, and supporters silently marching on campus in 1983, just a few yards away from where the museum is now. Beverly says this march was one of many advocating for Arizona to finally recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. She was there. What we wanted was this holiday in his honor. There had not been one for an African-American. So we did that for many years, even all the way up through the 90s, so probably 10, 15 years of marching. It would be more than a decade before Arizona officially recognized the holiday, after the NFL took a stand and refused to come to the state for the Super Bowl. The state lost millions of dollars. So by 96, when they considered coming back, of course, they passed it, and uh, the MLK Day for the state. And thus, the NFL has been here how many times now for a Super Bowl? Beverly spent her career as an educator in Tucson, and she serves on the board of the African-American Cultural and Historical Museum back home in Ann Arbor. Still, she says starting this museum has unearthed pieces of Arizona's Black history she never knew. That's what she's hoping this space can be, a place to learn, but also to build upon. Just like her grandson Jody asked for back in 2021. We really hope that, you know, 50 years from now, or 60 years from now, our little Jody, whether he lives here or not, he can come back and say, oh, I remember this. And it's a part of his history as well now. Alicia Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, a market-based approach to pricing water could ease the crisis in the West. Here's Mark Brody. Arizona and the six other Colorado River Basin states are trying to figure out a plan to conserve more of the river's dwindling water supplies. At the same time, there are efforts to find more sources of water, including the possibility of building a desalination plant on the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. But my next guest says there are easier and more cost-effective solutions to deal with the ongoing water crisis. Brian Leonard is an associate professor in ASU School of Sustainability and studies the economics of natural resources and environmental problems. And he advocates looking at how water is priced and specifically moving to a more market-based system to buy and sell it. He joins me to talk more about this. And Brian, if water were to be priced based on the market, how might that change the situation we're currently in? Yeah, so I think it would help us better understand kind of as a society what the highest valued use of our scarce water is. So when you don't have prices for an asset or for a resource, then it's kind of hard to know whether it's better to use it in one particular use or another. And so in the, in the case of water, it can be very difficult to transfer water from, say, agriculture to another use. And so that results in these big price differences between what like a city would have to pay uh, for their water supply versus the, the cost facing many farmers. Uh, and so then we, we don't have this idea that price or that water is flowing, quote unquote, to its highest valued use as reflected by prices. So in your mind, what would be the best way to do that? Because obviously water is different than a lot of other goods in the sense that like you cannot live without it. So you can't really deprive people of it. So like, what's the, the best, most equitable way and maybe the most efficient way to make a, a system like that work? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I've recently proposed is something called a reverse auction, uh, which sounds very scary and technical, but it's really quite simple. Um 
anybody who wants to sell water would basically put forward kind of a, a bid or a plan that would say, I would be willing to provide X amount of water at price Y. And so basically it would let the sellers of water, those that are currently using it, uh, in many cases, that's probably likely to be farmers or irrigation districts, kind of dictate the terms on which they would transfer some of that water, probably not all of it, but some of it to different uses, what, uh, whether that's the city of Phoenix or some other metropolitan area. Uh, it really lets the farmers kind of set the terms and avoids you know, what could be pretty drastic kind of cuts and, and top-down directives on who has to cut back their water use in the future if we continue to run out of water. Would that mean that cities, for example, might end up paying more for their water than what they're paying now? Ultimately, it would probably mean that they would pay less. Um, I'm just going to use totally made up numbers, but let's say it's it's costing a city, you know, four or five hundred dollars an acre foot, maybe six hundred dollars an acre foot. Again, made up numbers to get more water supply, whether that's by paying people to cut back or desalinating or something like that. It'd be much more expensive if they were desalinating. Right. But maybe farmers are only earning two hundred dollars an acre foot or three hundred dollars an acre foot by growing their crops. Well, then there's a wide range of numbers kind of between two or 300 and five or 600, where it would be a win-win. It'd be cheaper for the city to buy the water from the farmer than to get it somewhere else. And the farmer could actually make more money selling their water to the city or leasing their water to the city on a temporary basis than by growing whatever crop they were growing before. So does that result in less overall water being used or is it just sort of shifting around where the, the current amount of water is being used? So I guess that sort of depends how it goes and it kind of depends on what you think the alternative options are. So in some sense, it depends on who's buying that water. You know, it could be going directly from a farmer to the city. The other thing, you know, sort of what we advocated in our article was in the context of the, the sort of cutbacks that the Bureau of Reclamation is trying to achieve on the Colorado River Basin. And so in that case, it would be a reduction in overall water use. Like farmers would submit these these bids and do this reverse auction with the Bureau of Reclamation. The Bureau would pick sort of the best bids in their viewpoint uh, and then pay those farmers. And then that would be a reduction in total water use. So do you see these reverse auctions as the answer or do you see them as sort of part of the answer to dealing with dwindling water supplies in the West? I, I would say they're a tool in the toolkit. Uh, I'd say they're part of the answer. How realistic do you think it is that this could happen as it relates to water? So uh, if you had asked me that six months ago, I would have said I would have been a little bit more pessimistic. But honestly, the uh, many of the plans that the Bureau of Reclamation has put forward sort of to try to hit these reductions are kind of 90 percent of the way there. They, they basically put out a price and said, here's what we will pay you to reduce your water use. Now you must submit sort of plans for what actions you're going to take to, to get those reductions. And so really what, what I'm proposing or what we've proposed, what some other economists have proposed is just kind of a slight tweak on that, which is that instead of dictating the price, the Bureau of Reclamation should also let sort of irrigation districts or individual users propose a price. Assuming that that, that was to happen, I mean, how big of a, a shift would it be for farmers, irrigation districts, other users, in just in terms of sort of like the culture of water use and sort of the tradition of how folks have used it and how they paid for it in the past. Like, is this, would this be a big shift for them to adjust to, to a new program like that? 
I, I think so. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is is kind of the reality that we face in the Colorado River Basin with a, a structural kind of over allocation. You know, there's more <laughs> there are more rights to Colorado River water than there is water in the river in any given year. And so I think some sort of dramatic change is coming. And the Bureau has definitely indicated that these cuts have to come from somewhere. And so I think for me, at least the appeal of, of a market based approach more broadly, and, and perhaps a reverse auction approach in particular, is that it, it lets farmers at least have a say in what those reductions are going to look like, as opposed to being told by the Bureau, hey, guess what, you don't get any water anymore, uh, or something like that. And it compensates them, right? You know, they're getting a payment. I think one of the really important questions around that is how to compensate or how to make sure that that compensation is sort of shared by other stakeholders in the community who maybe aren't the ones who hold water rights. So, you know, laborers, input suppliers, output processors, all these people are going to be affected if there's like a reduction in agriculture, but they don't necessarily get a payment if a farmer or an irrigation district sells their water. And so I think thinking through kind of the broader community impacts is going to be really important. A lot of people really want to focus on technological solutions, whether it's desalination or direct potable reuse. And I think, you know, maybe there's a role for some of those technologies. But one thing that I always come back to is that, you know, the institutions that we currently have for allocating water are old. They're, they're from the 19th century. And there's a lot of room for improvement in those institutions. There's a lot of inefficiencies in the current system. And the cost of kind of moving water around, reallocating the water we already have, you think about it being kind of like a leaky bucket, bucket and plugging those leaks, is much more efficient, much more cost effective to do that than to, to build some of these new technologies like desalination that are still, you know, maybe an order of magnitude more costly than, say, leasing water from a farmer. And so for me, as we think about kind of water security in the future, there's really big gains to be had from fixing the institutions before we, you know, try to solve the problem by just creating new supplies of water. All right. That is Brian Leonard, an associate professor in ASU School of Sustainability. Brian, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. In Fronteras News. Under a new asylum rule proposed by the Biden administration in February, migrants seeking protection in the U.S. can be denied if they don't first seek protection in a country they pass through. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports that rights activists say this so-called transit ban could worsen a border crisis that began under the Trump administration, family separation. The Trump-era zero-tolerance policy gave U.S. border officers the ability to charge migrants crossing the border with a criminal offense and forcibly separate children from their parents, including those seeking asylum. Gladys Molina-Alt with the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights says under the proposed transit rule, families will face the same impossible choices. And then the parents are going to say, "Okay, but I want my children to be safe, so I guess we have to separate so that the child can get protection because I can't. Federal data shows a task force set up by the Biden administration has reunited almost 3,000 children separated from their parents under the zero-tolerance policy between 2017 and 2021. Almost 1,000 other children are still separated. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, in science news. Every three years, the American Cancer Society issues an update of statistics for colorectal cancer, the second most common cause of cancer deaths in the U.S., Unfortunately, this year's report shows that several positive trends are slowing or reversing. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. 
Colorectal cancer is still losing ground in the U.S., but just barely. A rise in the proportion of younger people with the disease has slowed its decline from 3 to 4 percent to just 1 percent. The share of cases among those younger than 55 nearly doubled between 1995 and 2019 to 20 percent. Colorectal cancers are also being detected at more advanced stages. In 2019, 60% of all new diagnoses were of advanced cases. That's higher than in 1995 before widespread screening. Today, 4 in 10 Americans aged 45 and older are not up to date on their screenings. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.